Hi, everyone. We're back with another installment in a series that we've been doing with a friend of ours, Jose Campos. He's a pediatric surgeon in Chile, and he helped us choose these articles and go through them with us. And we call them case-based literature reviews. Basically, we choose a topic, we go through the latest literature about that uh, disease and see what new findings are out there. I'm Ellen and Cisco. I'm M. Tom Bash. And I'm Cecilia Higiena. And we're research fellows at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. And this is Stay Current Podcasts. And today, as we have done in prior episodes, we started out with a case um, and we're going to go through a couple of questions and get Jose's thoughts and Todd's thoughts. And spoiler alert, today we're talking about pilonidal disease. And if you're watching or listening on StayCurrent app or YouTube, you can scroll down, click on the links, and read along with us while you're listening. All right, so here's the case. We are seeing the son of a family physician that we know. He's a 13-year-old male. He's been treated with incision and drainage and antibiotics for an infected pilonidal cyst. He's now asymptomatic. He's coming to you for a second opinion. Previously, someone has proposed a simple resection and midline closure, but he's been reading about some better and newer techniques for his problem. So Todd, what would be your preferred method for open surgery? All right. So first of all, I wouldn't operate on this kid. He's only had one episode and I don't operate after one episode because a lot of these patients have one episode and they never have it again. So my general rule is I wait for a second episode. So Todd, do you have any cases that you don't wait for the second episode? If they are very intolerant of having a second episode, I could be convinced on doing something sooner, especially now that we have less invasive approaches. But historically, I wait for two. Regarding these choices, I've done all of these over the years and I've changed and tried everything. So what have you tried in the past? I've done a resection down the midline with closure over vessel loops. That's what I was doing mostly. I was trained on doing marsupialization where I removed the whole thing and sewed the edges of the skin down. So you had a basically a permanent divot there. It worked well in that there were low recurrence rate, but it is disfiguring. And I have tried the keratacus flap. I've tried the rhomboid flap, but I haven't really seen any of them be better than anything else. Jose, do you operate after the first episode or, or after the, wait until two episodes like Todd does? So in my case, I would do marsupialization. I share the same experience. In general surgery, I saw case after case with all of these techniques failed and the patient's just being miserable. And just to comment on what you said, like I do operate after the first episode of symptoms or infection, the threshold for treating, I, I agree with that. I think it's going to change as soon as we get better data on the minimally invasive uh, techniques. One thing I'll tell you is the fact that so many surgeons have done all of these shows you that there was no good solution. article uh, relevant for this question is called Surgical Interventions for the Treatment of Sacrococcygeal Pilonidal Sinus Disease in Children, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. This is out of the Journal of Pediatric Surgery a couple of years ago in 2019. This study is coming out of the UK. 
They did a systematic review and meta-analysis, as the title suggests, of the different techniques for taking care of pilonidal disease. They looked at midline primary closure. They looked at healing by secondary intention after excision. They looked at off-midline primary closure, VAC therapy, minimally invasive techniques, and marsupialization. The final summary is that some of them were definitely worse than others, like midline primary closure. They found higher rates of recurrence and wound complications, similar for open wound healing or healing by secondary intention. But then the off-midline primary closure, minimally invasive techniques, and marsupialization had relatively low recurrence rates, 6 to 7% reported, and lower rates of wound complications. So it doesn't really answer the single best technique, but I think it points to some things being preferred. The other thing that is interesting about this systematic review is that the outcomes are much worse than in adults. Like of the reported meta-analysis in adults, this, these numbers are much worse. So I think we, we should be dealing with this disease in a different manner. So Jose, what do you think the main thing we can learn from this paper? One of the takeoff home messages of this article, I think there is already shared knowledge that off-midline is much better to midline closure. And I think that is as much as we can get from this meta-analysis because all the studies selected were low-quality studies low participant numbers of each short follow-up, and it was not a comparative meta-analysis. So it was more like a full risk estimate for each technique rather than a comparative meta-analysis. Second question, Todd. So the mom comes in and asks, are there any minimally invasive options that you would do? So would you prefer to do an open technique, Todd, or would you do something like the GIPS, the Pepsit, or an EPIC? The only one I've ever heard of is GIPS. GIPS was first published in 2008 after more than 1,000 adults treated with this technique. And it's curated, so resection of the, of the tract with a dermal punch biopsy and curatage of the remaining cavity. So... You get rid of, of the lining, of the internal lining of the cavity. And I think it works like a little bit like sclerotherapy for a vascular malformation. And the other one is Pepsid, which stands for pediatric EPSID. Can you explain that one too? Pepsid is just the same, doing it with a scope. So they put a cystoscope in, it's a 10 French cystoscope, and they just inflate the cavity with saline. So they clean up the cavity from all the granulatory tissue and everything. And then the diathermy, all of the li internal lining. What about EPIC, Jose? EPIC is, I think, a variation of the same. They use a flexible scope and they just clean the, all the cavity without diathermy to the internal lining. There are some people that are thrilled with Pepsi and I think that it has become very popular and there are lots of surgeons very vocal about it, about the benefits of using a scope. So I don't know, it hasn't been my experience, but I'm open to, to hear what they think about it. Same here, yeah. Let's keep moving on. What else do you have for us, Ellen? Okay, so first we're going to talk about the GIPS procedure or trephination and the literature related to that. The article relevant here is called Trephination versus Wide Excision for the Treatment of Pediatric Pilonidal Disease. This was also published in the Journal of Pediatric Surgery a couple of years ago in 2020, and this study was out of UC San Diego. So they took a look at 105 patients. 57% of them underwent trephination or GIPS. Just as a reminder, like Jose said, GIPS is where you use trephines to open up the pits and then clean them out afterwards. So like they, they took a look at 57% of their cohort who underwent trephination and the, re the remaining underwent wide excision. They took a look at the rates of wound complications and postoperative visits. And they found that 
Patients who underwent GIPS had fewer wound complications and fewer postoperative visits, but there was no difference here in the recurrence rates between trephination or GIPS and open excision. The recurrence rate here is about 8% in both groups. And so based on wound complications and postoperative visits, they concluded that GIPS was superior to excision with open wound healing. I was convinced six, seven years ago when um, I saw the first publication about it. There's lots of publications on this, but mostly there are small single center series saying that they did well. So the one we selected is actually the largest comparative pediatric report because we don't have a lot of good evidence. All of the techniques we're going to describe, they've already been standardized in adult patients. And I guess this is one of the diseases that you shouldn't make a strong difference between adults and children. Even though it's retrospective and it's only 60 patients in the Gibbs group, it shows that the results are considerably much better. What has your experience been taught? This is exactly the experience. I say this all the time. I think this is one of the biggest innovations in pediatric surgery in the last decade. Even if the results were the same, it's so much better. Historically, this was the most morbid operation I think we ever did in kids. And now, even if you can get the same results with just a few tiny incisions, that's amazing. The fact that we're getting better results, oh my God, that's like unbelievable. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the previous open techniques, it was an operation that everyone hates, like parents hated, kids hated, surgeons avoided all the time. So what do you say if we jump to the second article in which we're going to look into the recurrence rate? Yeah, that sounds perfect. Cecilia, which paper you have for us? It's called Long-Term Results of Upset in Children and Adolescents, Still the Right Way to Go. So this is an article that was published this year and it's from Italy. It was a retrospective single institution review from 2017 to 2021. They have 99 patients with 115 procedures, and they divided their patients in two groups. They have one group that was the short-term follow-up. That's a 12-month follow-up. And then they have the second group that has at least 36 months of follow-up. What they found is that in the short-term, they have 8% of recurrence. And in the long-term, meaning uh, after three years, they have a 15% recurrence rate. The ones that need a reoperation, they did with also an abscess. So it was also a minimally invasive surgery and only one patient had two recurrences and needed three surgeries. They have a rate of 5% of infections. Only one patient had bleeding but he didn't need any surgical or any procedure after that. What was the conclusion? Abscess is feasible um, to treat pilonidal disease, and it has low recurrence rates, but it also mentioned that you have to keep following those patients because in the short term, they have like half of the rate of the recurrence rate than in the long term. So it's important to follow the patients uh, for at least three years. It looks like the results after three years are a bit worse. The first meta-analysis we looked at, the pool estimate for recurrence for all many invasive techniques was 7%. So knowing that now that all the GIPs you'll do will could have a 15% recurrence rate, does that change your opinion on this technique or your management thought, or would you do just the same? No, I love it even more because now I have seen the extreme 
worst case scenario, and it's still so much better than everything else we had before. Anywhere between 25 and 50% recurrence rate for open repair. And now you're talking about, uh-oh, if you make a few tiny incisions, you may have up to 15% recurrence still, rate. Still better. <laughs> Yeah. And what we already said before, the results in children are worse than in adults. I don't have a clear explanation for that. I think all of these techniques are game changing. And it looks to me like the practice change has overcome the publication wave. So I agree with you, Jose. I would probably operate earlier now than before because we have such good outcomes. Yet once again, Jose changes my practice. <laughs> You heard it here first. That's a big statement. Okay, let's jump to the fourth one. Last article. So it sounds like we don't need to convince Todd to change it all, but we're going to talk about this other article just for our information and our education. What's you know about phenol, Todd and Jose? I know it, it works. I know at least one paper from Turkey, like six years ago, he published using phenol crystals. And my only concern about it is... Does it risk burning the skin? Yes, it does, but the risk is very low and there are ways to protect the skin. So that, that's all outlined in, in this article. This is actually the first randomized controlled trial in adolescent patients with phenol. Again, the adult population has already a lot of good literature on this topic, but there's, there's scarce literature, good quality literature in, in the management of pediatric and adolescent uh, panel disease. So that's why we brought this one. This paper is from Turkey and it's called Crystallized Phenol Treatment versus Excision and Primary Closure in Pilonidal Sinus Disease. This is a randomized clinical trial in adolescent patients. This paper published in 2021. So in this paper, they basically compared the crystallized phenol to excision and they recruited patients from January 2018 to December 2018. Uh, they had 100 patients in the trial, and half of them went to phenol group, and half of them went to the surgery. And after the surgeries, they follow up with the patients up to 24 months. The results show there is no difference in uh, post-op complications. And after 24 months of follow-up, the recurrence was 8% in the phenol group and 10% in the surgery group. And their outcomes between the surgical excision and the crystallized phenol treatment were similar and there were no statistical difference. So my question is, why should we go do surgery if we can use crystallized phenol? So for me, I'm not even looking at the control group because I don't even know what they're comparing it to really. I'm looking at just their overall outcomes. So 8% recurrence rate with phenol. And I'll tell you, I'd have to read the methods but I don't know how they would get the phenol in unless they did a Gips. You just have a tiny little pit. If the truck is not big enough, they would widen it with a mosquito or even use a derma punch as you do in a formal Gips. The difference with a Gips procedure is that they only cleaned cavity. They didn't uh, cure attach the cavity before applying the phenol. So it's not Gips plus phenol in this group of patients. It's phenol applied with the technique I, I just described. So it would be very interesting. And I know maybe you're thinking the same, Todd. I, I would love to do Gibbs plus phenol. <laughs> right. The obvious thing is do a Gibbs and add the phenol. And for me, I imagine that you put those crystals in and within an hour, they're liquefied. And now you have all this toxic liquid dripping out onto the skin. So that's why I've never used it because if the recurrence rates are so low with just trephines, a Gibbs, then why add toxic chemicals to the field unless you're sure there is a way to make it not burn the skin? 
So good question, Todd. They really only leave the phenol for two minutes and then they take it out. They may do it a couple of more times, but they don't leave the phenol and, and let it sit and uh, kind of get all over the skin post-operatively. Got it. Okay. I would love to move forward either as an alternative or to an add-on. In this article, they did mention, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they're out of 50, there were two children that got a minor burn around the side that required no extra treatment. So that okay. concern of yours, it is real. It happens, but doesn't seem to be a really big problem. You're convincing me again. Here's what I would do. I would do the gips. I would take a duoderm and lay it over the wound and then take it off. Look at the red spots of where the holes were and take the trephines in the duoderm so I can match it up, then put it back down. So now I have the holes of the duoderm matched up with the holes in the pyelonidal region. And then I would do the phenol. If it's interesting, the ointment may work just as good. It sounds like that may be more than I need, but I was thinking of protecting the skin with a duoderm and just cutting out the holes. I'm wondering people who have done a lot of gips and have used phenol, have they had problems or do their experience match what was published in here that it's just maybe minor irritation, but if you take precautions, you won't have an injury. I think we've covered from what we used to do, from what is being done now, even though the, the publications are not great, I think we're moving towards it. And I think we've just shared an extra idea on how to improve the outcomes on patients with pyelonidal disease. So yeah, I think I'm very happy with this. I love it. So the changes I'm going to make after this are, I may operate earlier since the operation is so minimally invasive, but I'll always discuss it with the patient and give them the option. And I will probably consider trying phenol on top of the GIPS. I do have a question for those who don't operate after the first episode. There's a lot of variation in treatment. Some people do nair and hair removal ointments. Some do shaving. Some do antibiotics. There's no consensus, probably because none of them work, on how to manage these conservatively. I really don't know. I think there's a quality gap here that lots of people should be looking into this season and filling these gaps with good studies and publications. Here's what I would say. This has been one of the biggest advances in our field. We get more excited about some minimally invasive chest procedure, but this is probably one of the biggest advances. Probably going to be a major reduction in narcotic use, a major reduction in missing school, in hospital costs, and I think this is a great review. So in summary, we talked about pyelonidal disease, the best treatment for it. We talked about four different articles looking at the different, a systematic review, looking at multiple different methods, as well as some of the minimally invasive methods, including the GIPS or trephination, Pepsit procedure, and phenol. I think overall, we've kind of established that there are some methods that aren't great, you know, lead, lead to higher recurrence rates, and those are open excision and midline closure. Off midline closure is a little bit better. The minimally invasive techniques of GIPS or trephination and EPSIT seem to have similar recurrence rates and wound complications, but those are some of the advances for pyelonidal disease. I think that one of the important things about this is that normally you need a lot of training or doing something minimally invasive. And this kind of technique is actually easier to do it than the open one. So it's a good thing to know. That's a good point. It's not a big jump in, in skills. We can all learn to do it. And Todd's pointed out several times that GIPS has really took off and a lot of people started doing it once, once it was introduced not too long ago. Awesome. Well, let us know what you think. 
If you have a topic you want a recent literature review on, let us know, send us a message or leave a comment. Jose is always excited for more of these conversations. Uh, look out for the next one. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, leave a reading or a review wherever you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, don't forget to download the Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery app for more of these podcasts, videos, and a lot more. I'm Ellen and Cisco. I'm M. Tom Bash. And I'm Cecilia Higiena. And this is the Stay Current Podcast.